Good morning, Lakeside family and guests and visitors from here in Halliburton or wherever you're joining us online. It's good to be with you this morning and to be able to open up God's word together. We are continuing in our series on Matthew, and uh, I thought today might be fairly short and sweet. It's a pretty straightforward teaching from Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, as we've just heard read so excellently. And uh, But as I got into it, it there was more to it. So it's not long. It's not going to be a long sermon. It's just not going to be quite as short as I thought it might have been. And in this section of Matthew, as I mentioned, we're in the fourth discourse of his teaching. And essentially, uh, Jesus is teaching us as Christ followers how to live in new kingdom realities and put away our instincts and put away the temptation to live by old kingdom or worldly kingdom rules. Three times during these teachings, Jesus begins by telling his disciples some form of this phrase. The Son of Man will be delivered to the authorities, they will condemn me to death, I will be mocked, beaten, and crucified, and rise again on the third day. He says that in Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22, and now again in 2017 in the context just prior to our text today. So Jesus, at this point of the Gospel of Matthew, is deliberately preparing his disciples for life without their rabbi. And as such, he's been focusing in on some of the foundational truths about Christian life together in the church, about Jesus' followers living in the world and with each other in community. And he uses examples like of the temple tax. He demonstrated that Christians are citizens of a new kingdom. They're free from the old law and they are free from obligation to earthly authority. And yet they do not use their freedom to resist. They use their freedom to be gracious and not give needless offense. If the world is going to be offended by Jesus' followers, they should only be offended by the gospel and not the fact that we cling to our rights in resistance against them. And then Jesus, knowing with amazing omniscience that even Christians would not get along with each other all the time, he gave a couple of lessons on forgiveness that we spent two weeks on, how foundational forgiveness is to our Christian life in community together, and how new kingdom forgiveness looks very different than old kingdom religious duty, and how it looks different than the payback of the worldly kingdoms. And we are still wrestling with those lessons on forgiveness even after two weeks of them and probably will wrestle with them for years to come, I am sure. They are hard lessons. And now Jesus is again going to give some more instruction to his disciples about the Christian life together. And the instruction this time is, what is greatness? What is social significance? What is power in the new kingdom and security? And we will not be surprised in this lesson that Jesus takes their old kingdom thinking and he turns it upside down in the new kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured very differently than greatness in the kingdoms of the world. If we're going to be God-honoring church in our community, if we are going to be God-honoring Christians who reflect the glory of the new kingdom, we will demonstrate greatness very differently than others might expect, even differently than we might expect. Just as we will not demand our rights under civil authority, just as we will not make people pay up who owe us a debt, neither will we seek significance and security and power in our personal relationships. 
Let's just pray before we open up the word and see what Jesus is teaching us by his spirit this morning. Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, which opens our eyes and opens our hearts to the truths that you would teach us. I pray that as we hear Jesus again teaching about how Christians are to act in the new kingdom and to put away the old, that these lessons would land on us in each and every relationship that we have. In Christ's name, amen. So this conversation between Jesus and the disciples that we have here, actually James and John's mother is there too, but this conversation actually begins in chapter 18. Uh, it really started as a result of, or, or maybe it's better to say in spite of, the teaching that Jesus just did in Matthew 18. And we skipped over that text when we were in Matthew 18 because I knew we were going to end up returning to it here in Matthew 20. But back in chapter 18, the disciples were asking essentially the same question. It says, at that time, the disciples, all the disciples, not just a couple of them, came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is about greatness. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now it's a few days later, after Jesus has given that little illustration about humility in the kingdom, and James and John still want a more direct answer. Who gets the best position of power and significance in the kingdom organization chart? How is this all going to get laid out? James and John are basically asking, are we working ourselves right now into executive level positions here? Or maybe their mother just wants to know that her sons are not wasting their life following this very strange rabbi around for three years without a solid source of income. And so she's asking, like any mother would, are my sons wasting their time here following this hippie around? Maybe they should be back fishing and uh, supporting their family. But I don't think we can let James and John totally off the hook here because the text tells us that the other 10 disciples were angry at them for their presumption or maybe just angry that they didn't think of going to Jesus first. Either way, the reality is, is that James and John have gone to Jesus asking this question. Where do we end up in the kingdom? Are we going to sit on your left and right hand? Are those coveted positions for us? And so we see here in the text, the mother comes and says that grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at the left of your kingdom. And right away, we see that this is a kingdom conversation again, just like forgiveness was about the kingdom, just like authority was about the kingdom. This is about the kingdom, except she is coming and James and John are coming with old kingdom, worldly king, kingdom thinking. And this is what I mean, because the right and the left hand of the seats or the thrones of authority on either side of the king are for his chief advisors. They are for his highest ranking nobles. So in today's terms, these are executives at the top of an organization chart. This is the CFO, the CEO, the CTO, the COO, whatever. They are the people with significance and security. And we think these things in worldly kingdom terms because of the result of sin. Significance and security in our life become a passion of our heart and they become necessary when sin entered the world because we lost our significance in our relationship with God, the most significant relationship and the most significant identity we could possibly have, we lost 
in sin. And at the same time, we lost our security of being perfectly cared for by God in an uncorrupted creation for eternity. Because of sin, the world seeks significance not in God that they've lost, but by elevating our relational standing among ourselves. How do I get higher up the ladder? How do I get a rung up over others? And in addition to significance, we seek power that comes with that significance as a means of our security. With power, we can minimize the threats of a sinful and cursed world. We can deflect almost anything that threatens our security with enough wealth and power except it's a futile effort because death still awaits us and we cannot thwart death. And with significance, we can try to replace what we lost in our relationship with our creator. And so we scramble around in futility trying to fill the significance gap in our heart with substitute significance. But that never satisfies. So you see, James and John are coming to Jesus with old kingdom thinking, with world kingdom thinking, with ultimately sinful and fleshly thinking, how do I get significance? How do I get security in this new kingdom? And Jesus says, that's old kingdom thinking, guys. You are, thinking, you are seeking significance and security in the wrong place. New kingdom turns old kingdom upside down. Jesus says, follow me. And understand the context here. This is about Jesus going to the cross. Jesus is going to become the most insignificant and powerless person on earth. The way of the cross that the followers of Jesus are called to is a path to complete humility and powerlessness by earthly standards. A criminal sentenced to the worst possible punishment carried out by an occupying enemy under the accusations of his own people for blasphemy against their God. That is the lowest rung on the social ladder of significance and power possible. It's not even a rung on the ladder. Where Jesus is going is the mud under the ladder that people step on just to reach the lowest rung. So James and John have got this whole idea of significance and security and power upside down. And Jesus says, are you going to follow me where I'm going? Because I'm going to show you something about what significance is, what glory is in the kingdom of heaven. So he asks them, he says, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And, and we know from other areas in scripture that the cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of suffering. He's saying, are you going to share in what I'm going to share in? I'm going to partake of something. I'm going to drink something. Are you going to drink it along with me? And you see, when you ask to sit beside the king the way James and John have asked, what you're really asking for is a share in their glory. James and John want a piece of Jesus's glory. They know he's the king, that's fine, but they want to share in that glory of Jesus. They want to sit beside him on the platform, on thrones beside his throne. And Jesus is asking them here, do you understand what kind of glory you are really asking for a share in? You are asking for a share in the glory of your king, but do you know what my glory is going to be? It is the glory of the cross. It is the glory of insignificance and weakness and powerlessness. The glory that I have to share with you is not what you're thinking it is, James and John. So they answer him and they say, yeah, we, we want a piece of this glory and, and we can drink the cup 
with you. We will share in it. And Jesus says to them in verse 23, you will indeed drink from my cup. And I don't know if James and John realize what they're saying when they say we can at this point, but whether they realize it or not, they are actually correct. By God's grace, they can and they will share in the glory of Jesus' death in their own suffering and deaths. For James, we get a summary of it in just one verse. It's almost easy to miss in Acts chapter 12 at the very beginning in verse 1. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was the days during the unleavened bread. I mean, it's shockingly sudden. Acts goes on to talk about Peter and his release from prison and all of that stuff. James is dead. This is a group of evangelists who are out doing street ministry. They're just sharing the good news of the gospel. They're preaching on the streets and they get arrested and bam, no trial, no protest, no recourse. James is dead, probably beheaded instantly. James, who we just in the last weeks heard about, read about, learned about, James seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain, seeing the glory of Jesus. James, who is part of the inner three, James will drink the cup of persecution for the sake of the gospel. He will share in the glory of Jesus just as he asked, but probably not the way he expected. He pictured thrones and glory in that regard, and that is to come, but that's not the cup of glory that he drank first. And John's cup is different than James's. Decades of ministry, but also years of captivity, arrested, tortured, and then exiled to the island of Patmos to die. The glory that they will share with Jesus is the glory that we all and all Christians, all followers of Jesus, to some degree or another, share in with Jesus. It is not the glory of the world's kingdom. It is not old kingdom glory, it's new kingdom glory. It's the glory of humility and insignificance, of weakness and even persecution. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 16. It says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. <clears throat> and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says we will drink that cup. We are heirs with Christ. We will share thrones beside Christ in our glory if we enter into the glory of suffering with him. Or 1 Peter 4 says it this way, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, our glory is in persecution. Our glory is in insult and suffering. That's the kind of glory Jesus says his followers will rejoice in. New kingdom glory, completely unexpected in the old kingdom of the world. But then Jesus says something very interesting now to James and John and their mother. After he explains 
old kingdom thinking, this is my cup, this is the glory that you're really asking for, and by God's grace, you will participate in it. He answers their question directly in a very interesting way. He says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So here's a bit of a bombshell of a sentence that we can't fully unpack right now in this message. This one sentence offers us several glimpses into two of the most difficult pieces of theology that we can try and understand on this side of eternity. First of all, there is a glimpse into the nature of the Trinity here in the sense that these rewards, and there are rewards for our suffering with Jesus. The Bible never says we suffer. We talked about this when we were talking about the hope of our suffering. We never suffer just for suffering's sake. There are rewards prepared for us. But Jesus says these places, these rewards, they, they exist, apparently, but they belong to those for whom have been prepared by the Father. It's not for me to grant. And so, we see the difference in the relationship between the Father and the Son, and we get a glimpse, just a, just a hint of the reality of the Trinity here. But we can't, we can't get into that right now. But we can also notice that, that whatever the rewards are in the kingdom, whatever positions Jesus' followers might hold, he says those places or positions in the kingdom already present tense belong to the people who God has already prepared them for, which speaks very tantalizingly to the doctrine of election, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, and our position in heaven is secure by his will, that he has already prepared our place and the people who will be in those places, it is there waiting for us. First Peter 1, 4-5 says, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's already there, and it's being guarded, and you're being guarded for something that is already prepared for you, and your place is established and secure. Praise God. Anyway, we won't unpack that. I just want you to see here in the words of Jesus himself what is going on behind the scenes. So back on track, Jesus says, new kingdom. It's not like old kingdom. You may be asking for a share in something that you cannot expect. And in fact, as my followers, you will get what you have asked for. You will share in my glory, but it is a glory that will come from worldly insignificance, not significance. It will come from suffering and servanthood, not prosperity and power. And Jesus then summarizes his lesson. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Right? You want to talk about sitting on thrones beside me in some sort of kingdom? You know how the worldly kingdoms work. Right? You know how the rulers of the world make this whole thing work. Not so with you. If you're pursuing significance and power over other people in an old kingdom way of thinking, you're doing it wrong. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is how things are in the new kingdom, disciples. My church, my people, Christians are going to apply this upside-down organization chart to every area of their life, to every relationship that they have. And as we look forward through the New Testament and the teaching of Paul and Peter and John and James, not this James, Jesus' half-brother James, we see this new kingdom reality emphasized over and over and over again. The disciples and the apostles learned this lesson, and so should we. Paul teaches it lots of different ways, but here is just one. He sums it up this way, esteem others more highly than yourself, Philippians 2, 3 to 4. He teaches, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That sounds exactly like what Jesus is telling James and John, doesn't it? Don't try to get the best thrones. Don't try to lord it over others. Don't try to get significance and power in this kingdom. Count everyone as more important than yourself and look out for their interests. Don't look out for your own interests. Or Peter taught it this way. He said, treat your wife more carefully and honorably than yourself. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands in the same way, treat your wives with consideration as the weaker partners and show them honor as fellow heirs in the grace of life. In this way, nothing will hinder your prayers. Now in his very controversial even more so for his time than for our time. In his very controversial teaching on mutual submission, he tells wives to honor their husbands, and then here he tells husbands to treat their wives more carefully and more honorably than they require themselves. He basically says, treat them like they need more care than you do. You can be rough on yourself if you want husbands, but don't be rough with your wife. Treat her as though she needs more careful treatment than you do. And then John teaches it this way. Paul teaches it to the church. Peter teaches it to husbands and wives. John teaches it this way just to fellow Christians. It says in 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So how far do we serve others? With our lives. We hold loosely to our life. Here, here, John isn't even looking for a throne anymore. He doesn't want the throne. Not only does he want, not want the throne beside Jesus in glory in an earthly kingdom sense, he doesn't even want his life anymore. He's like, I will lay down my life, let alone hang on to power and prestige in the kingdom. We hold loosely to our life and we set it down in order to serve others. What is it about my life that is all about me? Is it about my interests and my desires? Then I lay those down. I lay those things down in my life and instead serve others. Or James taught it this way in terms of practical realities inside the church. He says, show no preference. James 2, 1 to 4. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For, a, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James says this just works out really practically in the church. 
You don't put some people on thrones and other people on the floor. James, this is Jesus' brother James, not the James we're talking about in the text today, but James got it, Paul got it, Peter got it, John got it. They all got what Jesus was saying here. They learned the lesson of the new kingdom. We don't put ourselves on thrones. We don't put other people on thrones. The old kingdom thinking of the world is gone in the new kingdom. Don't set up your church like a class system with the wealthy and the powerful and the socially significant at the top and then on a decreasing scale to the poor and the insignificant at the bottom. Stop doing that. Every disciple and apostle learned this lesson. They understood the new kingdom reality. They lived it out themselves. They taught it over and over and over again. They taught this. And Jesus knows this is going to be hard for us because we just fall into those old kingdom patterns of behavior. Our flesh and our heart wants those old kingdom satisfactions. But Jesus says that way ends badly, not just in the new kingdom, but even in the old kingdom. Does anyone except the person at the top feel good about getting stepped on by others on the way up or even having to do the stepping themselves? No. And that's why the other disciples were indignant. We go on here, it says that when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They were annoyed with James and John. And this is what makes this new kingdom living really hard. Even once we understand the lesson, and we say to ourselves, we're going to put off the old and we're going to pick up the new. We say, we're not going to live in the old kingdom. We're going to live in the new kingdom without partiality and without treating people badly and counting others and esteeming others higher than ourselves and not seeking significance and power over others. This is what makes it really hard because Jesus tells his disciples, you need to serve one another. The greatest among you will be the last, will be a servant. You need to be like children without power, without status, without significance, humble towards each other. And here's the rub. You need to serve the very people that annoy you. You other 10 need to serve James and John, even though they just ruffled your feathers or rustled your jimmies or really stung you or whatever phrase you want to use. And that is hard in the church. It is hard to esteem others more highly than ourselves, even when we think that we are smarter or better or more correct or wiser than they are. It is hard to esteem others when we have been annoyed by them and discouraged by them and harmed by them. But we operate from a stance of respecting and esteeming and considering others more valuable so that whatever we do for others, even those that annoy us, even those that may be even trying to get an advantage over us, we always serve them so that what we are doing is honestly for their good. Now remember, the application of this comes from the context. That greatness is not measured by social significance, but by insignificance. Greatness is not measured by power and authority, but by humility and service. Jesus is going to become the least powerful and the most insignificant by going to the cross and thus overthrows the old kingdom. And all of this is taught in the context of verses 17 to 19. It's all about the cross. We're going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn me to death and they will hand me over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, I'll be raised to life. So are we going to learn these kingdom lessons? 
Are we going to be a people who live under a king and in a kingdom that operates by totally different rules? Are we going to be a people that daily set the old ways of doing these things aside and instead live in the new kingdom ways of living? That is what it is to be a Christ follower. You are daily setting down the old, dying to self and picking up and living in the new until one day, like Christ, the day of our glorification, we too will be raised from the dead and share in his glory. This is new kingdom reality. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your teaching. We thank you that it is all within the context of the good news of the cross, the good news that you have gone to pay the price we could not pay, to be the substitute that we could never be in order that we can live in the power of this new kingdom reality, that we can gladly suffer, we can gladly serve, we can gladly esteem others more highly than ourselves because our significance and our security is found wholly in you. And we need not strive and strain for power and authority over others in this old kingdom, but can set that old kingdom bondage aside and pick up freedom of life in the new kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.